Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Good evening, listeners, brave navigators of the enigmatic and the concealed. Have you ever felt the pull of the unanswered, the allure of the mysteries that shroud our existence? For more than a decade, a unique comic publisher has dared to dive into these mysteries, unafraid of the secrets they might uncover. This audacious entity is Paranoid American. Welcome to the mystifying universe of the Paranoid American podcast. Launched in the year 2012, Paranoid American has been on a mission to decipher the encrypted secrets of our world. From the unnerving enigma of MK Ultra mind control to the clandestine assemblies of secret societies. From the awe-inspiring frontiers of forbidden technology to the arcane patterns of occult symbols in our very own pop culture. They have committed to unveiling the concealed realities that lie just beneath the surface. Join us as we navigate these intricate landscapes, decoding the hidden scripts of our society and challenging the accepted perceptions of reality. Folks, I've got a big problem on my hands. There's a company called Paranoid American making all these funny memes and comics. Now, I'm a fair guy. I believe in free speech uh, as long as it doesn't cross the line. And if these AI-generated memes dare to make fun of me, they're crossing the line. This is your expedition into the realm of the extraordinary, the secret, the shrouded. Come with us as we sift through the world's grand mysteries, question the standardized narratives, and brave the cryptic labyrinth of the concealed truth. So strap yourselves in, broaden your horizons, and steel yourselves for a voyage into the enigmatic heart of the paranoid American podcast, where each story, every image, every revelation brings us one step closer to the elusive truth. What up, y'all? This is another episode of the Paranoid American Podcast, and today we've got Jack Lloyd, and he's going to live in this tiny little window at the bottom of the screen just as a complete assertion of dominance. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so uh, I want to welcome Jack Lloyd uh, from not just the Voluntarius comic series, but that's how I originally uh, came to know him. But I want to let you in- introduce yourself, where people can find you, and then we'll get into it. Yeah, so I'm uh, Jack Lloyd, and and as he uh, said, good to see you again. It's uh, it's been a little while, but uh, I've missed you. But I thought about you a lot. Um, so you know, we back in the day, uh, you know, I was working my Voluntarist comic series, and that was one of the things that we connected over. And so that's that's my flagship title, the the Voluntarist series, and it's a uh, one among many in my Voluntarist universe under Ancap Comics. But as he said. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I also am a producer for Liberty, which means I produce all different types of content uh, for educating people on individual liberty, um, from memes to educational videos to skits to music and music videos, um, merchandise and and the like. So I work often with the philosopher for that. So uh, she's my wife. She's awesome. And yeah, we uh, we do all kinds of cool stuff. We were just shooting a, a music video the other weekend actually called Break the Great Reset. Uh, which had some interesting uh, symbols in there. Uh, <laughs> made, me, made me think about some of the things that we uh, put in there with watching your amazing intro, which I really love. So 
uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a lot of fun uh, getting to be in the creative space, of course, like you, and to engage people intellectually, but with a, a beautiful medium. So, and uh, I I have to lead with one really important question: that Jack Lloyd, are you a police officer? Are you a cop? Because if you're a cop, you have to tell me. That's how the law works. No, what, yeah, I'm not a what guy, agency. A are you working with just? <laughs> But if three I, letters, yeah. four letters. No, okay, yeah, yeah. But no, I need you to confirm that you're a cop or not before we can even proceed here. No, I'm not. I'm definitely not a cop. So. Okay, okay, cool. cool. <laughs> I have right. just examined cops though on the stand. That was fun. When well, let's lead cop. into that, man. What? How did you find yourself in a courtroom uh, questioning a, a police officer? Sure. So, uh, you know, beyond all the crazy stuff I've done um, in a feels like a past life at this point. I've been a criminal defense lawyer. And so as part of doing juvenile defense, I cross-examined uh, police officers on the stand about you know what it is that they were doing at the time that they frisked and searched young people and that kind of thing. So um, you know, doing that was probably the most fun I had as a criminal defense attorney <laughs> being able to make police sweat on the stand. <laughs> do, they, do they know that you're enjoying it um, like as you're doing it? I don't. I mean, I did have a little bit, of, a little, little half smile, but no. I mean, I, I tried to go pretty hard on them and really show that they don't know what they're doing. Basically, that's that's kind of the goal there is to show that they make assumptions about things that are not necessarily true, and that that's kind of the the way to get them. <laughs> yeah, but but doesn't might make right? So doesn't just mean that they're they're correct all the time? If only, man. If only, right? Then you just have to push someone, and then you're. You're right. How do you <laughs> feel about um like all the auditors out there, like the police auditors? Um, you're saying like the First Amendment auditors who will go in like I think so. Like now, now that word I guess is a little bit vague because it's like yeah. they're self-appointed, right? Like they, they don't report to a specific committee that's told them to go out and audit police. They just say, yeah. "Hey, I've got a camera and I'm going to go and mess with cops today and call themselves an auditor." Or is there is there like a more official process to it? Um, I mean, there's like a like a little bit of a history with some organizations that kind of did this. I think of Cop Block, that used to be a big one back in the day by this guy named Pierre and Dima Freeman. Um, there used to be a Pinac, which I think they're still around. Photography is not a crime. That would report on these things, and they would go do audits. Mm -hmm. There's Audit the Audit. I think on uh, YouTube, I think they cover different things. You know, so it is decentralized, of course, but there's certainly branding or certain enclaves of people that you know fall under either a loose organization or, or kind of just an identity thing that like you know do those sometimes for sure there's you know they, they say that they're cop blocking or they you know they say they're cop, part of cop watch or something but yeah usually it's just people picking up the camera doing what they want kind of thing <laughs> so you're uh you come from the ancap world and yeah. we've, we've yeah. touched on it a little bit i i have so much to learn when it comes to like the official belief systems and, and everything, but I'm do police have a role in the world of ANCAP or are you like a defund police? Like give, give police more. I assume the and part means that automatically like no police are allowed to exist, but not everything's always so simple. Right. So, you know, it, it's really about the language of, of the word police, because typically when you're talking about police, you're often importing it from a government force perspective where they exist to just act upon what is the law, right? And so should we call them social workers? Is that the new, <laughs> the new no, word for police? No, they work in social workers. But no, I'm saying what people commonly associate with is the government force sense. When you think about policing, they're often thinking of someone who is just following orders. 
right? Because there's a big difference between the idea of justice and security um, and police, right? You could have justice and security, but it's not a police officer, right? For example, you as an individual happen to catch someone trying to break into your home and they want to, you know, kill you kind of thing and you you shoot them and, and stop them, right? That wasn't a cop. You just enacted justice, though, of stopping this bad guy who's literally trying to break in your house and then, you know, murder you, um, you know, and that's your own security. So, these are the types of things that we're really getting at. We're talking about the nature of policing is, is how is security provided? How are disputes resolved um, and without having the force of the state? So, uh, you know, as an ANCAP, that means that in an ideal situation, we're moving completely away from the one size fits all state funded through taxation police uh, force. Uh, but in terms of transition, I think there's, there's ways to get there where police you know, kind of come very close to that in, in theory. And that's just police no longer enforcing victimless crimes and then, um, you know, basically being paid voluntarily, right? Conceptually, those are the things that kind of underpin it, which is doing things to others that, you know, there's no victim for it. Like, you know, they're saying, hey, oh, you can't have cannabis. And so they arrest you, whatever, it's victimless crime. Um, and also, you know, the funding mechanism, that kind of thing. So you, you could probably move toward that direction with police as we know it conceptually in terms of, oh, okay, maybe they have shiny badges and, and guns or something like that, and they're employed in this capacity. But um, you know, to be ethical, they can't initiate force against others and be funded through mass forcible unilateral takings from everybody. That, you know, that would that would be the core problem. <laughs> I'm curious, there might not be a good answer to this, but are there any fictional movies or TV shows or anything that represent sort of like a, a society that's closer than we are? to i guess you know what would be envisioned for ancap like, even if it's not the complete utopia is there something that leans closer towards it so i think there's definitely some fiction authors in my zone of you know who have kind of done these things and more like science fiction like one of the more recent ones is rothmus he's written the, the series cliff hawk which has those kind of elements in it um but, you know, it's it's not as common. I mean, there's certainly, I think, ones that have those type of tones. I think the moon is a harsh mistress is one. Um, but there, and I think there's a comic series called The Probability Brooch that also touches on that. But it, not not too many. There's not I don't think there's too many that fully embrace it. Voluntarist, you could say, in, in the long run has stuff with that. Um, but of course, there's development before then. But it, it's not very common. Um to have that. And I'd say most of the, uh, you could say fiction out there, whether it's movies or, or books will often write about anything close to that as being this like evil thing where it's like, Oh, there's these corporations that rule the world and everyone's in a, you know, a corporate technocratic tyranny, uh, place kind of thing. It's not really, um, indicative of, of basically the values of, of voluntarists and ANCAPs. I mean, I'm, I might be out of step, but I feel like a lot of science fiction, when it gets into that utopian ideal phase, it almost always starts feeling communist. It almost never is like, and then everyone's going to, you know, like start putting in like really hard work and, you know, this guy's going to do that. I don't know. It, it it feels more like there's always some sort of an authority that tells people like, eh, you really need to do this job because that's going to be better for the overall society as a whole. So I, I I feel like if there was a good way to get people towards ANCAP or whatever philosophy you're in, it would help if like, you know, some popular media started painting the picture for people to be like, oh, that's what it is. I don't know. I just, I, that's curious. The, the moon is a harsh mistress. I've heard someone bring that up before 
and what was the other one that you mentioned? Cliff, Cliff something? Um, the Cliff Hawk series by Rothmus. Uh, he's Cliff Hawk uh, series. Yeah, he's a contemporary author who's been writing science fiction books, and I have them, and they're, they're pretty good. So it, it's more futuristic, though. Um, spacey sci-fi. <laughs> what do you think about uh, like the, the state of, I guess, popular media today, like movies coming out and like the comic book movies and comic book TV shows? Um, do you think that this is helping comics as a whole? Do you think it's hurting? Do you think it's neither? So right now, and we're having a big shift right now at the parallel economy because the mainstream films and the adaptations from you know past things, books and comics, stuff like that, have been pretty bad for a while. Um, all the different SJWing of, of the mainstream um, has has really come to its head, and all these big movies are you know they keep losing out. Uh, and they and they start you know compounding these losses, and so it created this opportunity, especially in the last uh, ten years, especially uh, for independent artists to really rise up. And it's it's been coming to a head in in monumental ways. I think of Comicsgate as being you know a part of that, but really you know getting some much bigger fanfare now. Um, I think the Ripperverse with Eric July and and what he did is huge. It's like that's a big. Uh, you know, stepping stone forward for everybody, like showing what can be done um, because he's raised this point between the two campaigns um, at, you know, probably about 6 million. And, you know, there's Ethan Van Skyver who has uh, cyber frog. Who's kind of the, the father figure of the uh, comic escape movement. Who's b- done very well in Indiegogo as well. So I think that we're starting to see the rise of the independence essentially uh, be, you know, becoming, much more successful than ever imagined. Like it's, it's finally hit that turning point where the attrition is strong enough from, from the mainstream and people are, are just getting so exhausted, you know, with the SJW and the, and just the lack of any interesting plots, you know, on top of that, you know, changing the, the colors and different characters and like, Ooh, here, here you go. Repackage. Uh, that, that now people Hope you are, don't like redheads. Yeah, exactly. All redheads, redheads are out. Um, so it, it, it's really been great. I'm I'm not, I'm super happy about it, honestly, because the fact of the matter is, is that because they had so many missteps in the mainstream, they just opened the door wide open. I think for people like us included um, in this realm, and I, I'm pretty stoked about that. Do you think there's ever going to be room for us at like the the mainstream comic conventions uh, again, or do you think those ones are just the property of you know Universal and Disney and you know, enter, enter the blank. Or do you think that I guess independent and underground um, can come together and like start their own movement? Cause it, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm feeding some of my own into that, right? It's a little bit of a leading question, but it does feel that comic conventions are very rarely about like these self-produced independent things that go against what everyone else is. feels like a majority of them, you go there to get someone draw you a picture of Superman or Spider-Man or whatever and then, you know, get a picture taken with someone in the Walking Dead TV series or one of like the nine spinoffs. And that leaves very little leftovers for the, you know, the independent comic writers and publishers and stuff. Yeah, I think we're we're heading toward that direction. It's not like you can't go to a lot of these. It may be just not the biggest, the biggest, but most comic conventions, you could get a table like most of them will accept you. They have artist alleys for independent artists all the time. But I think that with what's happening with that tide changing over with so many different independent artists now coming up, I think there's, it's only a matter of time year or two at most before you actually have an independent artist conventions. I think 
as as more of like a big thing, like as big as you know San Diego Comic Con or Dragon Con or something like that. We're talking that level. I think is is around the corner where we're going to see um, a convention be established or maybe you know whether it's it's a round table of of independent artists you know starting that or someone who just sees the opportunity. It's going to be you know pretty big once that happens, like an, a, something exclusively for independent. Um, artists to actually come and table and do their stuff when you have enough big fan bases to make it worth it, you know? What if we could get a, a Ripicon going at a certain point? <laughs> I imagine that is is not too far off. I mean, as big as he is, again, you still need um, enough of a draw. You need enough talents, but if you have enough big ones, especially drawn from some from Comics Gate leftovers who have their own um, series, I think it's 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 very probable that it could be done. I don't, I don't see why not. I think that the, the demand is there and the talents are there. So it's, it's really just a matter of making sure that whoever does it doesn't screw it up. You know what I mean? The last thing you want is someone who really doesn't know how to put a convention up right and then screws everybody you know, to have, have the reins on that one. You got to make sure it's done right. So Everyone gets a Turner's Diary on the way in. Right. <laughs> be off to a good start. Um, I'm curious. Uh, do you have any thoughts on AI artwork, which is starting uh-huh. to come into our our realm a little bit more? Yeah, I, I noticed your your intro had a lot of that. Um, it was amazing, actually. I, I loved it. Uh, I, That's the main reason for this show was just to force people to watch my two minute intro. I thought it was. I, I was honestly, my jaw was dropped. I was, I was incredible. The production on it. I mean, I I'm just guessing that you had. Um, one of the sound AI things where you ran through certain people's, you know, voices and then yeah, I use of, 11 lab. There's no secrets. I use 11 labs. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, it, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people who get concerned about these things and say, Oh, but this is going to make it harder for other people. It's like, it's just nonsense. All it does is it, it gives people the opportunity to become even more creative and to do crazier things. Like that's just basically it. So um, it's another uh, tool, and either you end up using it or you end up, you know, basically falling behind in technology, just like the computer or a cell phone. It's, it's no, it's no different to me. Um, so I, I love it. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. It's, I mean, those. It's fairly controversial still, especially in the comics world. I know a lot of artists that I work with probably hate the concept of even like playing around with some of it. But yeah, I guess it's going to be a, a tool that you're going to have to use at some point. So, uh, do you think that whenever the whole concept of general automation and general AI comes in, and it's like if it replaces every job, right? Every job that doesn't involve then repairing or doing maintenance on the AI that took your job then everyone's like, well, then that's the universal basic income, right? If if these machines are just doing everything for everyone all the time, then what do we have in place of that? Like, how, do, how does the world keep operating if machines are now doing everything for us? So well, solve, there's, solve there's that a, five words or less. Yeah, I can solve it. It takes a little more than five words, but I can solve it very easily. So the the, the problem here is there's, there's a lot of, of things that go on behind the scenes of that, right? So when it comes to um, automation, AI, and, and people losing jobs, absolutely, of course, there's going to be certain jobs that are outmoded. In fact, Microsoft laid off tons of, of teams in preparation for AI um, integration and doing the APIs for that and then, you know, the automation. So absolutely. But it's not uh, a matter of actually making people poor. It actually makes things more efficient. It makes people richer um, because it lets them be able to do more um, and and be more efficient. Uh, 
So when we're talking about the underpinning issues as, as relates to resources and things like that, just because you have um, you know something that makes things more efficient doesn't tell you the prioritization of what resource should be used for what and why, right? Because there's scarcity. So you may have you know a, a block of iron, but just because you have a block of iron doesn't tell you what it is that that should be used toward. You know, should it be used for a car? Should it be used for a microwave? Should it be used for a rocket ship? It doesn't tell you. So that's how come prices are so incredibly important because when it comes to a monetary system, that allows people to subjectively value and say, hey, I value this a lot for this purpose. I believe I'm going to be able to use this for something, you know, that's going to either make me more money or is going to be, you know, very important. It allows people to actually signal what it is they want. And without that price um, signaling, you can't actually determine what scarce resources can be used for what. So AI can't fundamentally erase a human value because it, human beings are the ones who lay what is going to be subjectively valued. And you need human beings who say who owns what, right? That's that's the ownership of scarcity. The, the machine doesn't own everything. Uh, it's people. People are saying, oh, okay, I'm, you, I have this claim to this land. You have that claim to this land. That's your car. That's my car, et cetera. So um, the, the things that are barriers to that, the, the problem that we face is that with technology and efficiency, you know, you can get deflation technically out of that, uh, where, you know, you know, basically with, with the efficiencies, you know, uh, people might be need, be need to be paid less because, you know, things can be made more cheaply, that kind of thing. And it's hard to adjust back down once you're paid at a certain level. That's where people get, you know, kind of stuck with, you know, that sticky wage thing. So the, other barrier there that's like tough for people to to deal with is is minimum wage, right? Because if you have minimum wage laws, you can't have people adjust to a more efficient future. Um, because if you have a minimum wage dollar price, right? If let's just say minimum wage is ten dollars, if you're only able to provide nine dollars in value, well then you're unemployable, right? Because someone who wants to hire you, you need to provide more than ten dollars of value to them per hour, or they're literally just having a break even or a loss, right? You're not actually doing anything, so. With minimum wage laws as well, it makes it so that you have mass unemployment. And so this kind of paradigm is a false construct. It's used, um, you know, this, this scarcity that is a human scarcity in terms of, of wages thing is a false construct. And it's used by the government to get to trick people into being like, oh, see, this is why you need a UBI. This is why you need a welfare state. Because they're like, well, okay, you can't make less than $15 an hour. Oh, but too bad. Now no one wants to pay you. You don't have the skills for it. So I guess you'll just have to go on government assistance. Instead of the reality being like, oh, okay, what would happen if you actually could just make $7 an hour instead of 10 and yet you could buy so much more because you're, you're, the value of your currency or your money um, is that much more, right? Just like when you go back before all the crazy inflation we have, um, with 25 cents in the 1950s, you could probably get you know two slices of pizza and a soda. And now that costs five bucks or six bucks or maybe 10 bucks if you're in you know California or something. So... People need to understand that um, the barriers to being able to adapt to this technology are really government imposed. It's not actually the technology that's a problem. It's the government not allowing people to adjust in the market um, accordingly and to be able to to grow at that. So, you know, just like with every any other technological advancement, um, whatever a certain efficiency arises, then people just provide value in other ways that the technology cannot do. That's basically it. One of your fa- my favorite responses that you gave last time we were talking is that like 
when people nitpick systems and it's like, yeah, but compared to what, you know, compare it to the thing that we have now, don't compare it to an ideal that never existed. So I guess in, in one of those comparisons, let's say you've got this huge workforce. So I'll just make it a round number and say like a million. It's probably way more than that. But a million people that literally don't have any skills that would be worth to a large corporation, anything more than $6 an hour. And they would just rather put automated checkouts and automated whatever, you know, even outsource everything to other countries where people would do it for cheaper. So then what happens with this huge pool of people that don't have any sort of skills that would earn them enough to survive um, is like, cause I feel like sometimes now like the Walmart greeter instances, right? Like two people make out like Walmart, I guess it has to be a write-off. Cause I don't think that Walmart greeters necessarily like drive sales <laughs> through the door or anything, but, but those kind of positions also just give people security to just, you know, keep living, I guess. So if you just say like, Hey, too bad corporations decided that, you know, all of these jobs are now going to be way cheaper to just put a machine in there. And here's your final paycheck. And now like you don't have anywhere else to apply because everyone just replaced all those kind of like low level positions. Is there any sort of the current plan now is everyone gets on government assistance and then they just wait for UBI to settle in, you know, and I, I, it feels like that might be the direction that we maybe are headed. I don't know any other solutions that are even on the horizon. Are there any. I guess, you know, ANCAP thinkers that are just like, hey, once we get there, here's the solution for that. Listen to me. Well, I, I think that it's kind of a false framing. And again, I think that the um, these issues don't actually have anything to do with, with productivity. And there, there's two very clear issues to, to look at and to digest first, you know. So the first issue is um, with the corporation firing a bunch of people and this or that. Um, remember, these companies aren't making products just to sit right? They're not like, oh, we're going to make food and we're going to make a lot of food and no one is going to be able to afford to buy it, right? As a business owner, do you just make food and say, hey, I'm going to put this on the shelf. Oh, I'm going to put all this food out. Nobody can afford this, huh? Well, I guess that was a huge waste of money, right? I mean, honestly, if you ever seen like Dunkin' Donuts at the end of the night and they just throw it all out and they're legally like, don't give it to anyone because if someone got sick, then they would sue them. So I mean, there's instances of food waste. That's actually not true. The government actually mandates that. So the mm, okay. government actually requires um, those uh, disposal laws. Those are those are actually government forced. Some businesses can get around that. it. Yeah, you definitely go go look it up for food disposal. Governments are the ones that actually mandate that. And sometimes they get around this by working with not for profits, and they do it at like the last minute where they're able to donate it. So I know Panera does this, where they can like slough off some of the, the last bread and go to a church or or five one c three. But the, you know those are government laws that force that. So a lot of people think like, oh, look at all this waste of that. It's like, no, that's literally the government mandates that. And why do they do that? Because they're the ones saying, oh, well, someone could get sick, but they don't care about the homeless. You know what I mean? They don't care. Even though these businesses might be like, yeah, maybe we would, we would you know, donate this to a shelter or something like that. Um, yeah, no, the government forces that. So a lot of these problems are revolving around government intervention in the market. It's not actually a, a meaningful issue in terms of people not being able to afford things. Um, and this, this, uh, you know, economic fact just happens to be like the, the necessary uh, condition for people getting paid and finding ways to provide value. Because again, if you're a producer, who are you producing for? If nobody can buy your product, then who are you producing for? There's, there's nothing to buy, right? Nobody has any money. So it doesn't make any sense. That's how come Henry Ford instituted the eight hour workday and he had the five day a week thing, because if people were working through the week and they had no time to buy cars. He did that because he was, he's like, oh, right. 
people actually need time to buy the stuff that I'm selling. So he pushed for that because intentionally he's like, oh, okay, I need, you know, people need to actually time to go and, and buy stuff. So there's this total interest, a self-interest, even at the business level to have people actually want to do business with you and to, and to have the money to even buy your product. Otherwise, what, what good is it? So um, I would say though, that beyond that though, the question of, okay, how, what are we really rubbing up against when we're dealing with, um, you know, people suddenly not being able to provide enough value for what, you know, maybe machines and other capacities could do. Then again, we have to look at the total landscape of, oh, okay, well, what are the people's other economic factors? What's, you know, weighing on them, right? You have property taxes, you have the government keeping land, they have 640 million acres that they keep from people to be able to actually have a homestead independently, right? So if you are someone who's like, okay, maybe I can't, make it in this uh, corporatist culture. But you know what? If I have my own plot of land that I can homestead and I can grow my own you know, food and trade with neighbors and live a simple life, whatever, you know, that could be a thing. But the government is like, well, guess what? Too bad. We're going to ban your you know, vegetable garden. We're going to fine you for collecting rainwater. We're going to say you owe us taxes forever, even though you paid off your home. Oh, too bad. You're going to owe us money forever. Um, if you're like, you know, actually, I, I could you know, grow a little green leaf. Oh, but we're going to throw you in prison if you try to grow that. Right. You have this whole system of oppression against evil for just trying to have independence and even trying to find ways to provide for themselves. So I think that's really the issue. It's not the technology. The technology only enhances people's ability to be productive and then gives people new ways to, to provide value. Um, but when the government sets these limits or, or incarcerates people for benign activities, uh, you really can't rise to that. And there's there's no way out of it. And that's how the government creates this Hegelian dialectic. They create the problem, they create the reaction, they create the solution. Right? <laughs> well, I'm glad you said I, I had that on the, the tip of my tongue uh, yeah. <laughs> because a lot of what you're describing here sounds exactly like, you know, create the problem, create the solution, right. which is, yeah, Hegelian dialectics. So that that's always what the government has done. Uh, the government is not this benevolent charity. Um, it's people who are there for their own interests and power. And sometimes those things align with the general population, you know, just like someone in power doesn't want to be bombed by some other person or they don't want to be murdered or they want to be able to go get food, right? They have interests for themselves that happen to align with other people as well. So that's why, um, you know, there, there are limits to those uh, things that, you know, people in, in, in government do at times because, they don't want to disrupt their productivity and their and their peace. And that's why you often see them being like, well, see, we're going to provide you with fire protection and police and stuff like that. In reality, it's just them trying to protect themselves. They're sitting there just being like, no, we can't let the masses overthrow us. We can't let a foreign government overthrow us. But, it, you know, there's tangential benefits and some of those things um, just because, of course, you know, people have an interest in not being murdered or blown up or this or that. But then the government, of course, by the nature of the people who are in there, selectively murders people and and steals accordingly because they can cover it with law right so they do it in a in a more regulated uh, systematized manner of theft and mass murder because if it's done orderly and by the books then people accept it more right you know if it's just some regular thief it's like whatever but if it's like oh well the government they're going to steal your money well okay that's okay i guess there's an election and they voted for it right as long as they're doing it to that guy over there too then i guess it's okay <laughs> exactly so it that's what really the core problem is here when we're talking about these things. That we would be infinitely more wealthy than we are right now. And to me, that's that's something that people don't even really understand is that the technologies that we have have been so exponentially efficient that 
we think, oh, we have a little bit of progress for making, you know, a little bit, things are getting better and better, but it's, it's nothing compared to what it would be if the government was out of the way. It, it, we are, we are literally having the crumbs of what the government has left over from what would be like a complete insane renaissance. I mean, we're talking about, you know, cell phones being out possibly in the seventies, if it wasn't for the government stopping them, literally that, that kind of thing. So it's really something wild when you actually look at the history of government regulation and theft and and other things like that and war and how much that has soaked up our productivity and that we think, okay, you know, technology is going to look better each year, but in reality, we are like 50, 60 years behind where we should be, you know, if we actually had just property rights being respected. <laughs> so that you, well, yeah, we're talking consumer. Cause I, I guess, do you believe that the military is, or how many years do you think the military is from consumer technology? Do you think we're neck and neck? Do you think they're ahead? Oh, the the um, the military is far more advanced because the government under 35 USC 181 basically has unbridled access to all patents and does so through national security directives and the state secrets privilege, you know, uh, stemming from the Reynolds case in the 50s. So the government, anytime they see something come to the pipeline like oh that's too advanced they just gag it and they take it and this is you know thousands of inventions we're talking about um probably eight thousand at least at this point and on top of that you know they have global surveillance um corporate espionage and all that good stuff as you know uh so the government has way advanced technology not because they are magically more special in the market more so because they're able to just take whatever they want from anywhere that any development just use it either through compulsory licensing, they mandate, oh, we get to license this, here's your royalty, or they gag it and they they, they use it. Um, and then they're also have access to the global market, right? So the government is not like this magical, you know, cartoonish thing where it's like, oh, see, the government could just like magically build this crazy ship. No, they're like, okay, we're hiring this firm to do this thing. We're hiring another firm to do another thing, you know, and they don't know what each other's doing. Left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, but they're having things independently made in different places, but they have the brilliance of, you know, high level scientists and um, access to, to wild technology that's kept intentionally from the public. So they are definitely way more advanced in the, in the, the deepest parts of the state, for sure. Absolutely. How much do you think government has their fingers in entertainment at like a very direct level? Oh, 100%. Um, we did a great video, the Flash and I, um, um, called National Security Cinema, talking about that book specifically. Uh, and, and we covered um, how the government, since basically the inception of film, you know, has has been uh, basically influencing it for war propaganda in the 1910s. Um, they've literally had tons of, of connections with various Hollywood producers over the years. Um, and a big part of that, how they have their weight, is that the government will say, hey, if you want to have access to our set for filming, then you got to let us review your scripts um, and make changes as necessary kind of thing. So they basically, you know, they do the bait and uh, and and lure thing and they say, hey, you can come shoot at our, you know, at this base, you know, for your multi-million dollar blockbuster, but you got to give us access to the scripts and we can give some edits. And, and so, um, you know, the government has been doing that for a very long time. Um, and under Hoover too, you know, he he got his hands on a lot of stuff in the mid 20th century, uh, basically uh, getting to the point where he would use his like threat of prosecution to like get onto shows and like, you know, dictate what's going on. 
Um, I think even the show, the FBI, I think it was, was that the 60s or 70s? I got to look it back up. But basically, you know, he was reviewing every script that they had and like making sure it showed them a good light. I mean, they were very controlling. Um, that is, you know, the, the FBI and the government over how they were portrayed in the media. So that's why you see most movies um, are going to be the government's the good guy, the savior of the day, epic action. And then like the American flag comes across it because it's it's propaganda for the state. and um, you know, on top of that, there's also the the government grants, right? You know, so you go see certain movies and they're like at the end, like, oh, this is done in, in uh, conjunction with the uh, Georgia filmmaking, whatever, uh, you know, board or whatever. So they go to different countries or states where they give them special tax exemptions and blah, 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 or, or money even to come film there. So you have direct ties monetarily. You have the government directly imposing on scripts. Um, and then sometimes even, you know, uh, people who are ex-military and stuff like that getting, you know, their hands in there too, you know, working directly on it. So, um, yeah, I mean, pretty much like the Hollywood is, is by and large a, a government propaganda machine. <laughs> you know, it's also interesting. I might be reading into this, but it's interesting that you'll see people get big in Hollywood pivot and transition into politics, mm-hmm. but it seems very rare for someone to be in politics to transition to anywhere except for, like a high corporate position, which they leverage their connections within the government. But it's like, I, I, I can't think of many politicians that got big in politics and then were like, all right, I'm going to ride this one all the way into Hollywood and become a big star. <laughs> it's like the exact opposite from that. I don't know if there's something to that or not. Yeah, I agree. I can't, like off the top of my head, I can't think of too many. The ones that I think of, are more on the news side of things. So not on what you can call entertainment, um, but or more like propaganda. But yeah, most of the stuff that I think when I think about going from government out into something in film, I'm thinking like, okay, the ex-NSA directors going into CNN or, um, you know, on Fox. Oliver North becomes right, like Oliver a... North, uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. The, the revolving door for the intelligence agencies is is by and large mostly news networks and cable news networks and that's you know with operation mockingbird but you know still going on so uh, that that's why i i think that that's <laughs> that's more right. likely you'd see someone end up <laughs> i've got a fun one for you feet feet to the fire question all right yeah. like don't don't squirrel out of this one what are your three favorite government institutions oh um that's a, that's a fun way to say which three do I hate the least? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. So I think could this be also branches of government per se? Is that is that's that a little too vague? I want I want like a like an actual like, like a, I'm not going to say a, FDA or F you know but you know something uh, EPA. That's tough because I because uh, my first thought is always going to be who is who is the least impactful. You got, uh, right, you just got to pick one. Make We'll make it easy. You just got to pick one. So they're like, look, we're going to give this ANCAP stuff a chance, but we got to keep one department intact. And tell me why it's the IRS. Yeah, right. No, definitely not the IRS. <laughs> definitely not the IRS. Yeah, there you go. Um, oh, man. They, like, maybe the would you count the National um, Endowment for the Arts, NEA? Sure, I feel like that's a that's a weak answer, but yeah, <laughs> not because I like them, I hate them, but it's just it, if I'm going to go with okay, like at least this is not an agency that's 
you know, they're, they're just doing cronyism mostly for, for funding artists, you know, with, with tax money, as opposed to being like, oh, okay, the, the ATF and they're like running guns to, to cartels under, you know, operation, uh, fast. Fair okay. So, so yeah. it'll be endowments for the arts, but the money's all going to go to Marina Abramovich and, uh, <laughs> spear cooking parties. That's the catch. Well, I mean, no matter what way you cut it, I mean, your money's going to uh, child predators. So <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, which child predator do you prefer? I don't know, you know. <laughs> well, okay, I feel like we're getting into uh, a segment that I'm still, I'm still figuring the name out, but uh, I think I'm going to call it the Paranormal Conspiracy Probe, or mm. PCP for short. So we're going to do some PCP really quick. Okay. And basically... It, this has evolved, but I want to get your rating, like almost sure. Rorschach style, like the first number that comes to your head, okay. one being you think it's a PSYOP, you think it's BS, and 10 being like you're all in. So for example, I, actually, I am going to ask you about dinosaurs. Yeah. But like, if you say one, it's, it's because you think dinosaurs are a PSYOP, they never existed, mm -hmm. they're all fake. And then a 10 is like, oh yeah, 100%, you walk into the Museum of Natural History, and whatever it shows on the wall, that's a, that's a dinosaur, that would be a 10. So oh. I just want to, I want to get, we're doing some rapid fire. So just give me some numbers one to 10. All right. Are you, are you ready for this? Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Did Oswald shoot JFK? Two. Okay. Are ghosts real? One. <laughs> Do you believe in the Bermuda Triangle? Eight. <laughs> Is the earth flat? One. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> do secret satanic societies control Hollywood? Nine. Uh, was Michael Jackson guilty? Seven. Oof. Are there hidden messages in Beatles songs? Nine. <laughs> do, do crystal skulls possess powers? One. Did Tesla discover a new form of energy that's just been suppressed for over a hundred years? Eight. And do you believe in the existence of telepathy? Two. All right. I mean, I've, I'm getting a little bit of a read here. So ghosts <laughs> one and telepathy <laughs> two. And so, so not a lot of woo woo, right? Yeah. I'm low on the woo woo, but I'm where are you at on the religion on scale? The well, I'm agnostic, so um, you know that that means that basically, for, as far as my principles and philosophy is concerned, I think that even addressing the question of it, there is a God. There's there's philosophical conundrums about you know uh, contradictions, and then there's just ways that like you basically can't know. And one of those is like the, the idea of if there's a God that's omniscient, right? In order to be omniscient, you also have to be omniscient because you have to know everything to fact check that they know everything. So there's like impossibilities of like knowing if something's omniscient, that kind of stuff. So there's just like different things like that where you can go through and be like, okay, you know, yeah, even agnostic's just a fancy way of saying no comment, right? No, agnostic is is that is that I I don't think there is, but I'm always open to reason and evidence, but I just don't I don't think that there is. I, I haven't seen someone, you know, provide that evidence that would make sense. <laughs> well, I mean, this, this is getting into like the philosophical questions, yeah. but I guess my favorite one on that, that angle is if it's just completely ration, you want to sit down and just rationalize everything. Mm -hmm. Why is there something rather than nothing? Cause wouldn't just the existence of nothing make more sense than the existence of something. I don't know that any of those are, are mandatorily um, 
logical to like as a deductive thing. To me, it's more question that I think this is where people get to. And that as this, as far as you can go back basically is, was there always consciousness? Was there, and, and that was first, was there always unconsciousness and then, you know, consciousness or was there consciousness and unconsciousness existing always at the same time? That's where we end up. Basically, we, those are the kind of the big three, right? Okay. Cause that's what people say. Oh, religion. Oh, there was a God and he spoke and blah, blah, blah stuff. Then there's, oh, there's no God. There was just stuff. And then consciousness arose, right? And then there's, there was some type of supreme thing, but there was also unconscious things material at the same time. You know, God exists within that. So, you know, that's that's kind of where we, we come to those crossroads. And I find that none of those are, are falsifiable to me. Um, and, and two of them c- come into very difficult, uh, you know, question, which is, even if there was a God, right, was that God within the universe already kind of thing, right? Like that, that's a, that's a or, And who's his God? Yeah. <laughs> right. And right. And someone might say, well, is that a God? It's like, well, if they all, if they have your attributes that make you think they're a God there, that they can create that, you know, out of thing and they, they have the whole, you know, the morality, whatever. I don't know. Just what about to- like ancient aliens and Nephilim and giants that built pyramids with levitation? And did, do you, do you entertain any of that or is that all just kind of like fanciful Disney stuff? So, well, there's, there's a couple topics there. So there, there's, there's different levels of different things, right? Cause the question, of the pyramids, you know, lots of people think about that, like, okay, well, how would they have cut the stones so smoothly? And, you know, was it aliens or something like that? You know, and the, the Pharaoh's like staff that had electricity, you know, a, a charge thing. As uh, you do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, as you do. So I, I don't I don't know. I don't like for me, I just don't find any of it that fantastic as in like, oh, it's you know, this is so beyond like what humans could possibly do. Um, but I don't I don't rule out that there could have been some outside influence in terms of an extraterrestrial thing, but I don't I don't typically find that to be very plausible or or very um realistic. Just knowing some of the things we know about how far we are from other things. And how long it takes to travel, even with, you know, things like potentially, oh, is there a wormhole? There's a lot of, a lot of little factors that come into it that make it very tough. I'm a, I tend to lean toward, um, personally, I tend to lean toward the government uh, has advanced technology that would look to us like, you know, oh, that's an alien ship or something like that. And I think that the governments of the world that have had the technology, especially since the 70s, have been working on animal um, human chimeras for a long time. So uh, I think it's more probable that we would s- end up seeing something genetically created, you know, in a lab that looks like an alien than an actual, oh, actually came from out of space thing, personally. Were you uh, on Project Bluebeam? No. <laughs> I was not. Wouldn't that be before my time? <laughs> no, no. Well, well okay, okay. So the, the modern interpretation of of project blue beam <laughs> would be that the government pairs up with NASA and they project yeah. holograms in the sky and they basically right. make it look like we're having an alien invasion. And, right, uh, right. and I think they pitched that I'm, I'm going to get all the names wrong. It was like mongoose maybe, but they were, they were going to pitch it in Cuba at some point it was one of the many crazy ideas that right. the CIA had to like, just, I sort of like um, disenfranchise. Cuba as a whole, and then we're going to set off oh, a bunch yeah. of fireworks and play religious quotes or something over loudspeakers. And they thought people would be like, "Oh, fireworks and quotes! This has got to be the second coming, right?" right. Like, 
Jesus has come down. But I guess the yeah. new angle of Project Bluebeam is just going to be, okay, now it's this alien threat. It's going to be this thing that unites all of humanity. And we're like, all right, join arms, sing, you know, we are the world, one mm-hmm. government, one religion, Israel and Palestine, join arms, and we all shoot at the aliens in the sky, I guess. Do you yeah. think any of that is going to actually happen is in the books? Uh, I mean, because and I ask you because it feels like a lot of people are starting to entertain, especially with a bunch of the, the government, you, well, what the hell are UAPs and UFO mm-hmm. disclosures? Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, that's literally the plot of Voluntarist. So my co- so like I'm like way ahead on this. You know what I mean? Like, you are you know, are you gonna hipster me now on blue beam? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm way. Ahead. I'm like I'm just saying. You know, I I already knew man is coming. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I wasn't the first person either to like entertain that as a concept. So I'm not saying I had like oh you know I'm the first person, but I I did um, formulate it into more of a specific totalitarian one world government kind of thing in, in a unique way. Although, um, uh, what's his face? The behold the. Uh, pale white horse uh, author um, william cooper cooper right yeah he mentions that as well um that kind of thing so i want to know where you feel it is on like a very realistic level like outside the world of comic books you know very very realistic it's it's their last act of in my opinion that's the last desperation act like that's basically your their trump card when they think the culture has gotten too far out of their control and they're not able to get you know their depopulation done in time they're like, okay, we got to roll. This is it. We got, this is our last, this is they're like for them. This is our last stand to control everybody. And it fits neatly um, into a lot of the most major religions because with a lot of different religions, you know, the major ones, especially monotheistic religions, they're looking for a savior. They're looking for end time stuff. Um, they're, you know, looking for, you know, that type of big event, you know what I mean? To, uh, to say that you know their prophecies are going to be fulfilled, and so to me, a lot of that is almost like a self fulfilling prophecy for for those things, right? Um, whether they're going to claim, you know, depending on the religion or domination, some might be like, "Oh, those are demons," right? Oh, here end times. Some are going to be like, "Oh no, this is the Messiah," right? So it all feeds into a lot of pre existing biases too that they're. I think those, you know, the state plus higher than that um, are, are really wanting to to play to. So, you know, it's it, for me, it's it's kind of like an expected thing. I, I, I very much expect that, but only at the last resort. It's kind of like the, okay, you know, here's our thing. So so global false flag, where are you at on 9-11? You think 9-11 was inside job false flag? Yeah, I mean, as far as I have seen, and, you know, I've looked through a lot of different tapes and Pentagon footage and this or that and the history with Israel and this or that. Um, it, it seems to me that the event was at a bare minimum uh allowed to happen um that is that the u.s government probably you know let those planes kind of go and uh on some levels and then when it comes to the um flight 93 that was uh you know crashed that seems to me like it may have been shot down um the you know just with the evidence on, on the ground and stuff like that and my thought there was that maybe they wanted to cover that up because, um, you know, if if they shot those down, they were worried about the ramifications publicly, right? You know what I mean? Oh, okay. How do you justify, you know, having a, a jet shoot down a plane full of people? Um, 
So, you know, I, I think that there's definitely uh, orchestration and permission, you know, that kind of thing. That's it's kind of how it goes. A lot of Pat seeing work, right? You know, the, the government looks for useful idiots or people who are already aligned with their objectives, and then they either enable it or just let it slip. It's just, it's how it goes, right? A lot of times with the government um, and, and these types of orchestrations, they don't have to push as much, right? They don't, they don't necessarily have to push as much as much as per- permit or, um, you know, just enable someone who's already kind of interested and willing to, to go along kind of thing. So, and I want to, I want to keep pulling on that thread. What about Oklahoma city? Do you think, what, what are your thoughts on that one? Um, I think that, yeah, he, uh, uh, what's his face? Wasn't acting. McVeigh. McVeigh. Yeah. He, um, from what I've read, Terry Nichols was maybe his while. Yeah. I, I think that he wasn't acting alone, obviously in that one. Yeah. Do you think there's a chance that that was like entirely government plan and they were just waiting for the right useful idiot to come along and hit Probably the button that they given, had wired up? Yeah, given how things were in the building and right, wasn't that mostly like all cleared out and stuff too at the time? Um, what the um, the Edward G. Murrow building? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. No, it was it, they actually had a full nursery, which is right where the uh, the explosion went off, but it was. It was a very similar um, yeah. false flag, at least in the conspiracy realm. Right, I'm, I'm getting yeah. into conspiracy here, but right. that the bomb went off on the outside ground level of the building. Yet there was massive devastation, and one of the leading theories, right, conspiracy right. theories, was that just like 9/11, there was thermite placed at charges in like the structural points in the building, so that when the yeah. outside truck bomb went off. It was really just the distraction catalyst, you know, cover story for the real explosives that were inside. Sort of like the 9-11 theories was that the plane hitting the building, that was the cover right. story right. so that they right. can, you know, hit the button. Perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. I'm just a little fuzzy because I haven't looked at it in a while. But was it um, wasn't there another truck or something that was found or like not reported on that there was like something else besides that? They were like double, dude. They were like double rider trucks. There was also right, like a right. third John Doe. There was a, right, a yeah. whole bunch of sightings around. Yeah, if, yeah. if you're interested in that one and, and fuzzy on it, there's a operation called PatCon, which was uh, Patriot something or other. It didn't stand for conspiracy or convention. It was basically the FBI infiltrating these extremist groups, or as they labeled them, extremist groups, right. <laughs> um, which itself was a continuation of Waco, which it was a continuation of Ruby Ridge. Um, yeah, what, do you have any thoughts on that that succession of events at all? Because it feels like that's almost like the lifeblood of a lot of conspiracy theory lore. Yeah, no, nothing in particular about the the connection among those. I just know that in the in the 90s, that was a big focus of the government was trying to like go after these groups. Cause there was this like rise of, of people kind of like being angry at the government kind of thing. And, and um, you know, that then of course there's a 94 assault weapons, assault weapons ban uh, under Clinton um, as, as part that's of when that. they look scary, right? That's, that's right, when you make yeah. a gun illegal. If it looks scary, black and scary. Um, like, yeah, Joe Biden didn't really like anything black in the nineties. So um but he would just shoot his shoot gun, his uh, shotgun up in the air and scare you away. That was his suggestion, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, the and on I think the heels of that there was also the school shooting stuff. I think that was you know getting ahead. I I, I was actually yeah, right. more, I was just reading something today. I don't. I again, I was just scanning. I have no um, in depth knowledge on this. I was just casually reading this on Twitter. But something more about other people at the Columbine shooting. 
that there were more people in the, in the, the mm. two who are alleged to have shot. And I was reading through some of those documents. Again, I don't know whether it's fake or real or anything like that. It, literally, I, I like somehow came across it just a half hour before the show. It's like, oh, that's interesting. I was just starting to look at it. So I'm not versed on it all, whether it's real or fake, but it was, it was curious. And of course, as with many different past, uh, you know, shootings, there's often uh, some suspicious things about extra characters and other people, you know, helping out. Like when I do know more of like the underwear bomber, the United flight, was it 293? That basically... Yeah, I forgot about him. And the shoe guy too, right? Right, yeah. That like, you know, there's there's basically t- people taking videos and handling all that stuff. And then those people like get off and then they're never seen from again, except, you know, the guy. And that one's, you know, very real. Kurt Haskell, who was an attorney who saw that and wrote a whole account, did videos and interviews about it. He's like, you know what I mean? Like a very credible person going on a safari with his wife, like on vacation. And he's like, okay, uh, and where'd the other guys go, right? Like he's like watching the news, like, oh, okay, so like they got the rest of the guys too, right? And then they're like, what? So, yeah, you know, it happens. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious too, because I guess this, uh, this extremist, especially like the right-wing extremist stuff, it seems now that gets layered directly on top of conspiracy theorists in general. And that didn't mm-hmm. always used to be the case. It feels right. like over the last decade, uh, conspiracy theorists went from being, I want to say bipartisan. Is that the right word? We went from being like a bipartisan thing to now, if you say I'm a conspiracy theorist or, you know, you question 9-11 mm-hmm. or your truther, and it's like, oh, what did you vote for Trump? That I mean, that's just, it's not always that simple, but it does feel like it leans into that angle. And there's another one. Here's the question that I'm getting to in a long way away. There's another weird sort of um, pattern that emerges that maybe I've observed for my own reasons, but it feels like the conspiracy theory community also is much more attractive to like very religious people. Like you get a lot of the, you know, the government, yeah, the government's trying to screw us all over and um, the CIA is working with Hollywood, but it's really because of Satan and Satan's the real one behind it. And I'm just, do you have any thoughts on, does that pop its head in like ANCAP? Is ANCAP largely like agnostic atheist? Or is there any crossover at all with religion? Do you see the same patterns? ANCAP has like a wide range of people. Like, so it's not necessarily, um, you know, religious or atheist, that kind of thing. But I do have a personal connection with what you're talking about because I was raised in an evangelical household um, and went to Christian school and things like that. And the idea of labeling that stuff as like, oh, this is Satan's doing, um, that was definitely common, um, even in the 90s and, and, and things like that, uh, you know, just being like, you know, Satan's the ruler over the principalities of, of this world and, you know, ultimately controls everything until God comes back. Uh, that was a, a very common theme. So I'm not, I'm not really surprised about that. Um, and I'd say, especially post Tea Party, like that, the at least the Republican conservative side of things, especially the very pro-Israel side of things, they definitely got into that. Like the whole like, oh, okay, prophecy and then plus conspiracy to meet the prophecy kind of movement. You know, yeah, I, and I guess too, if the ultimate conspiracy is like the Satan's always around the next corner or he's always trying to deceive you, if you're all in on that, then yeah, everything's kind of like, what is a bigger conspiracy than the devil plotting against God and you, right? Like that's the ultimate one. And I guess any other mortal realm version of a conspiracy theory would just kind of pale in comparison to that one. Yeah. And it's very easy to weave into any situation, right? You know, just ascribing it to demonic activity or Satan. So, yeah, unfortunately it doesn't really help people think about 
factors and actions and their incentives. But <laughs> do you, I'm curious how your view on religion, is it a net positive? Is it a net negative? Um, to me, religion is people trying to find um, their sense of, of meaning and purpose and identity um, and, and place in the world. And so it, it's like a, it's proto philosophy um, in terms of, of people trying to like ascribe meaning and think about causal reality, like why does something happen? But it just tends to be more mystical. I think that, um, you know, religion in some cases may have helped people get out of worse forms of thinking or may have helped them um, feel more healed or connected with others. So there's, you know, relative kind of benefits there, but it's not beneficial if you're really trying to uh, understand re- reality and, and ground yourself in it and think about causation and you know how your actions and words affect others and, and matter kind of thing. So I think you know if if you are um, ascribing too much uh, to to religious causation, of course, eventually you'll on the spectrum you'll go insane, right? So if I'm, I'm taking this in kind of an abstract level right now, but if we think on a continuum, right, for religious thinking, most people don't act. Um, in pure spirituality, right? If you act in pure spirituality, like, oh, whatever, my body doesn't matter, only, you know, the metaphysical does, right? You're going to get hurt or die, right? And people don't just go, you know, I'll just jump off this building. God told me to, or, oh, you tell me God told me to jump off this building? All right, let me go do it, right? You know, people tend to to balk at that because they understand from observing reality that it has, <laughs> has a weight on them. So the people, the the, the further you get from, giving deference to reality and the physical reality, empirical reality, the more you might likely become irrational in your behavior and start to ascribe causation to things that are not causal and then really just make horrible decisions and, 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 and have dysfunctional relationships. That's, that's you know, basically how I see it in that continuum. Uh, I don't know if this would be considered woo-woo or not. Do you believe in like other realities and dimensions? Like, Do you think that there could be you know, like another dimension that overlaps on top of us that there's, you know, other beings or there's other sounds and sensations of things that are just completely imperceptible to us? Or do you think that everything is kind of mundane and could be explained through modern tools and technology? Well, if we were to experience it, then it would be explainable because the very act of, you know, being able to observe means that it is tangible to our senses or is able to be interpreted through, you know, something that can sense it and then reinterpret to us. So I, I mean, there's definitely things that fall outside of what we can readily observe, right? Like the light spectrum, there's limits to what we can see, even though it exists like, you know, an infrared, there's limits to sound, right? There's vibrations in the air molecules, which are material, but we can't perceive all those things. I think there's certainly, um, limits to what we can or cannot perceive. And I don't know if I'd call it necessarily another dimension or reality, but it it's in the realm of possibility that there are things beyond our perception that could exist. But I don't um, act on or believe in those things without reason and evidence, basically. What do you think about Antarctica? Do you think that there's uh, any... I mean, clearly we're not allowed to go there for reasons, right? What do you think those reasons are? Uh, definitely government testing of things. I think that's... I'm pretty sure that's that's what. Do you have any specific specific ideas or theories that you like to entertain that's going on there? 
Is it is it a secret entrance into like a whole nother like world or nation or set of lands, or is it just like they're you know they're torturing baby seals for like oil? <laughs> well, I don't know about much of of those things because it's yeah, I'm thinking I'm basically Admiral Bird. His name was right, right? Like yeah, it. The thing is, it's not, it really is a rough climate out there. Like so, at the end of the day, you got to be realistic about this. Like. It's, I mean, again, maybe you could build something that it really can resist that environment, but it is harsh. It is, it is no joke being up there and down are there. Are you speaking from experience? Mem- remember, you are on record saying you are not part of any of these agencies. I'm not. I'm definitely not. So what's your experience with Antarctica, sir? Oh, just, you know, looking at uh, videos of people who, you know, go there for different things, expeditions and whatever, and this or that. So um, it, it's it's very tough, right? It's, it's very tough to be in that environment. So for me, I think it's just more plausible that the government is testing out, you know, crazy um, craft and ships up there where that, you know, they know that, okay, if we're tra- testing out extreme speed tests or, you know, extreme penetration tests, we can do this here and no one's going to, you know, likely bother us kind of thing. Um, I could see that. Um, but, you know, surviving up there would be, would be a difficult difficult time <laughs> do you think that the government is still doing a version of mk ultra today like a massive mind control program or do you think they've shopped it out to private industry at this point um i don't know that they would need to use all those tactics that they did because a lot of there's you know mk ultra had a lot of different tactics with uh sydney gottlieb they the drug part to me seems less necessary because um, you know, with, with with drugs now at this point, a lot of people kind of know what many drugs can do. You got like PCAL out there. You got all this legalization going on around. You know, it, it, we've gotten shared technology enough. There, there, it's it's a little bit less special. You know, when you have groups of CEOs going down to do like ayahuasca trips in Peru. So <laughs> there's not as much, I think, of a of a mystery to that aspect. Um, and I think that the trauma induced brainwashing could probably be done without having to worry about like LSD or or any other types of, you know, drugging. I don't think that's necessarily really required, you know, so much anymore. I think the government's a bit more um, effective at doing other forms of trauma based brainwashing that don't necessarily need drug induced um, dissociation to achieve. Um, at, you know, at this point, there's, there's a lot of, again, with physical violence and other forms of, of, of torture and other, or other forms of, um, handling, you know, you could say that that can be done. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, necessarily be like, oh, I got to give this guy LSD or he's not going to, you know, do the, the 10 word code that like sets him off. You know, I, I think it's, it's less, uh, <laughs> it's less necessary, I would say, uh, to do so. What do you think is the deal? I, I mentioned her name earlier. What do you think is the deal with the whole spirit cooking stuff and like the celebrities and the and the politicians? Do you think they're just trying to be seen? Do you think they're edge lords? Do you think they actually believe in some of it? Oh, I think they believe in it. Yeah, they, I think they believe in it just like a Christian believes in in Jesus and the devil. It's no different. It's it's the same thing. You know what I mean? That's going on. Um, you know, anywhere where it's it's a religious belief, I think that they buy into this idea that it's like, oh, okay, this was the way that, you know, the ancients and the pagans maintained their power. And, you know, you got to get your subjects to like buy into what you want and get them to consent to your 
torture and you're brainwashed. You want them to like willingly serve you. And they do a bunch of these, you know, types of rituals to, to psychologically prepare themselves for that and to, to control people. So I, I think that it's mostly that they just, they genuinely believe it in as much as, you know, a Christian believes that the devil's out there, you know, telling people this in. So they just, how real do you think the frazzle drip video is on a scale from one to 10? What's the frazzle drip video? What's the frazzle drip? Okay. So the, fra- yeah. <laughs> the frazzle drip video. And by the way, this is sponsored by hello fresh. You can put in a paranoid American and get 20. No, I'm just kidding. So the, 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 fra- <laughs> the frazzle drip video was apparently a file that was called frazzled.rip that was found on i might get some of this wrong hunter by one oh no sorry anthony weiner's laptop so when they found anthony weiner's laptop for like the seventh time after he got Mm -hmm. caught whatever however many times it was uh, apparently him and um his wife whom uh biden i guess her name was um Mm. they might have had this like insurance policy like a dead man switch love like i've got all of your evil secrets and Mm. the internet rumor which as far as I'm aware of, ne- has never been backed up. But there was a video on th- inside of this Frazzle.rip file that had Hillary Clinton, I think, wearing the face of like a small girl, like taking her face off, screaming, gore, wearing it. And then like someone, I guess, extracts some thrill oxide from her to, to use later. Um, so, th- so that I guess if you haven't heard it, then it's unfair to just immediately give it a score of what you think <laughs> of it. I'm surprised though, because I mean, this is like one of the the bigger ones to have come out of like a lot of the QAnon stuff. Yeah, no, because with anything that I look at with that kind of stuff, I need to see the evidence. I need to like trace it myself and and be confident. So I saw the wiener pics. I mean, I saw those, <laughs> but so I knew that. They're, but they're I, my background on my phone right now. Okay, well. That's that's the way to do it, you know. It keeps away the the Bidens, um, but the uh, yeah, I I have heard of such things though. I have heard of people claiming that kind of stuff. I didn't hear that the frazzle connection thing, but same thing. I, I've never uh, seen anything like that. I mean, she's clearly sociopathic, borderline psychopathic, absolutely murderous. You know, traced their history with what they did in Mina and murdering people and stuff like that. She she is power hungry to the T. Like she is literally like, you know, pretty bad. And she, you know, and just you know, she stays with her husband despite him being a total philanderer, you know, disgusting guy because she is really wanting that power. Like that's how much she craves it. So and once you go black, you don't go back, right? <laughs> Bill, Bill Clinton was the first black president. Oh yeah, how come? I think just because he played saxophone, maybe. Oh, I don't know. Okay, okay. I don't remember the reason. Right. Maybe you think of his what, what was it, Danny, his like supposed uh Oh yeah, Danny Clinton. Danny, yeah. Um my friend uh Alex, who's a free knots, they did a um I think they did a collaboration song or I don't know who was with him about that about specifically Bill Clinton's, you know, supposed son, which he does really look like him, so I don't blame him. Even if he wasn't his son, I'm like, I get it. I, I can see why you think so. Uh, but yeah. So yeah, I, I, I think that just observing their behavior and their actions or connection, to their history to me, I mean, they're, they're very, um, you know, I, as you can imagine, just power hungry, sociopathic, borderline psychopathic, um, willing to basically do anything to, to get into and maintain power. So. Well, I uh, I actually really want to know more about your answer for the Lee Harvey Oswald one. So you gave it a two on Lee Harvey. 
And I'm curious, did, do you think he had nothing to do with it? Was he truly just a patsy? Do you think that it was, it was, I mean, I guess in my mind, I'm not going to say what you think. What I think is like yeah. eight people had their fingers on the trigger and then like someone took them out and then everyone looked down and was like, damn, you know, I, I thought that was mine, but it was just <laughs> like someone yeah. was going to shoot him that day. Um, that that's what I thought as well. I thought because that's uh, you know so that happens sometimes is, is doing the the multiple hitman thing. So mm-hmm. you have backups like you know just in case right first shooter misses or you need a, another fall guy. I think that it's very possible there was multiple people that day that were on the case. Um, so how, how much do you personally care about the JFK assassination? I mean, I I care in the general sense that I'm like I don't like what the the CIA was orchestrating and, and what they were trying to do at the time, especially, you know, with they're trying to push for war. Um, they didn't like, you know, his challenging of, of the, the banking uh, system and what was going on. So um, not that JFK was a good guy, you know, JFK, he was put there because they, you know, they thought he was easy to push over because he was a philanderer. He was a cheater. And so there was this blackmail on him. So it was just the usual, like, yeah, we got blackmail on this guy. He's owned, we, you know, we don't have to worry about him. But then he's out here trying to, you know, keep Vietnam from happening. Um, and and now he's got to go. So, it, you know, I, I, it was pretty sophisticated. That's some pretty high, you know, that's a pretty high level stuff going on there. And of course, the Secret Service agent in the video being called off the car, like so obviously, I mean, literally like being told, hey, come off. And he's like, what? You know, like really confused. Like, why am I being called off the back of this car right before he gets shot? Um, so, you know, it's, it's very clear that it was a high level orchestration to have that. Do you think that that's the reason why they haven't released all of the documentation and footage? And do you think it's ever coming out all of it? Or do you think it's going to be locked away forever? They, I, From my understanding, the government only tries to let things out when they want to like rub it in our faces and they think no one's going to do anything about it. So I think the fact they haven't released it kind of makes it so that they think, you know, they can't rub it in our faces yet. They think that like it would be enough to, to really cause problems though. I think that's probably why. Yeah. What do you think in, in your mind, what do you think would happen theoretically if someone leaked it and it was like, okay, you got us. Those are the official records. And sure enough, uh, the government determined that the government took out JFK. Do you think that anything would change or would that just be like another bullet pointed, you know, pop quiz you'd have to worry about if you're in eighth grade? I I think that like the main thing that, that we're seeing in terms of political power shifts is, um, you know, secession and nullification. And already there's been a lot of movement on that uh, among the states in various ways whether it's sanctuary cities, legalizing cannabis, um, having te- Texas having a suppressor law where they nullify the ATF. Um, I think that when you have enough of these events put together, you can get a coalition of, of governors who might come together and be like, okay, we're, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to stop it. It's possible. Um, so I, I think that's, that's possibly the greatest threat the federal government really faces, I think, generally, is is the real battle between the the people who want power, right? The people who are like, oh, okay, you know what? We need to work together, the smaller tyrants, to stop the bigger tyrants because we could be the next one killed, kind of thing. You know what I mean? If if they're that concerned, I think that's that's a real 
uh, situation that can come from that. And that's been something that's happened many times in history, you know, civil wars and secession and balkanization. That's, you know, that's just a fact of history. So that could be a real catalyst, I think, potentially, especially with everything that's happened with, you know, the shutdowns, lockdowns and Epstein at this point, that would be real, you know, that'd be real big. (laughs) So I got another favorite list. Can you name your top uh, three favorite ATF agents? Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I really, I'm, I'm curious about the ATF. Um, it seemed, man, because I go to all different forums, um, and I, and I, one of my favorite ones is like liberal gun owners, which gives you like an idea of what, like, really hard, like people that would consider this home of blue, but they also are pro Second Amendment. I guess they're like the ultimate fud. But then you've <laughs> also got a lot of. I guess, right-wingers, conservatives, and they're like, yeah, my my governor is, you know, going to make this uh, um, like a, a legal to carry, you know, in the whole state. You don't need a permit and all this other stuff. But it also doesn't seem like anyone has ever really been pushing back against the ATF, not even the NRA, maybe the, the GOA, is it? Gun Owners of America. They had a few things that were going up against, especially like the, um, the pistol brace was one of the most recent ones, right? And the pistol brace to me almost feels like this game of chicken slash rubbing your face in it where it's like, let's see how much authority the ATF can assert over the rest of the country and who doesn't push back against it. And right after that happened, there were some people proclaiming like, oh, we're actually glad this happened because now we can make an argument for common use. And if we can make a common use argument and overturn the pistol brace, and then it was like, well, then we'll get suppressors back too. And it's like, whoa, guys, hold on. (laughs) Like, I can't remember for the life of me any time that there's been like progress on the Second Amendment side. If anything, it's just always seceding to compromises, but never getting anything in return. And one of those things in return is that like you don't have to pay $300 to get a tax stamp to get a suppressor to protect your hearing because suppressors aren't you really used by ninjas that assassinate your family in the middle of the night undetected and then like you know sneak out through like an air vent so (laughs) so long-winded question but like is the atf is there any chance that it slowly goes away or is it only getting stronger there's a big chance that it gets um eat like mostly neutered or goes away so the three core cases that have been leading up to this time that are really promising in this direction are Heller, McDonald, and Bruin. Um, Heller was that uh, individual right to bear arms at, you know, out of Washington, uh, D.C. Then McDonald incorporated that rule against the states, meaning that everyone, not just people in federal territories or, you know, D.C., um, have that right to bear arms. And then Bruin, which was a case striking down New York's permit system, was basically, you know, saying that um, these like may issue, you know, things can't stand. And they talked about, you know, history and textual analysis about, um, you know, certain regulations be, you know, you have to find evidence way back in the day to say that this regulation was used back in the 1700s or early 1800s for it to apply today. That's, you know, what's supposed to be at least, um, in terms of the, the case and the interpretation. And now the big organization that's been suing a lot over these is Farmers Policy Coalition. So big ups to them. Love them. What are the uh, names again? Farmers Policy uh, Firearms Policy Coalition. Firearms Policy Coalition. Yeah, FPC. Uh, so definitely join them if you know everybody's watching you haven't. They're, they're great. So they were suing over the pistol rule and they, they got um, a temporary injunction against them in the Fifth Circuit. They're also suing over the 80% lower rule and they're you know doing a crazy amount of amazing work. They are they're kicking butt. So GOA is good too. Um, I just personally love FPC because I just love how they have, they're very radical and, and 
principled in their branding and their language. There's no compromise whatsoever. They're amazing. So, What's the deal with the NRA? Do you think it's just because they they just have made so much money and has too many like revolving mm-hmm. politicians coming in and out? Or do you think they actually stand for anything? I mean, the NRA, you know, I'll, I'll be fair to them and say they've done some good things over the years. There's definitely been times they've done. They, they neglected the McDonald, the Heller McDonald cases. Uh, actually, Alan Gura had to take them out because NRA wouldn't take them. Um, but but generally speaking, though, they've been they've been, you know, compromising on rights um, time and again. And they claim they don't. But it, it's it's just not true. They haven't been as radical as they need to be. And because of that. A lot of people in, in in today's world and the next generation, the young generation of gun owners have really kind of just washed up their you know their hands of NRA and have gone on to GOA and FPC, especially. Um, so the NRA, you know, is like the target of the Democrats and 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 the gun control advocates because that's their like their punching bag they've had for a long time. But by the time they figure it out that the NRA is not even like really the future, it's it's really FPC and then maybe GOA. You know, it's, it's going to be too late for them because the cases that have come through are very strong, and the and the textual um, interpretation on you know from the Supreme Court uh, is really suggesting that a lot of the things that they're going for, that is the gun control lobby, it, it, it's just not going to stand because the common use thing you're talking about is true. The, the common use language was used, and you know, the AR platform is the most commonly used platform in America. It's the, yeah, but it's there once really scary though hmm? it's like it a really is. scary platform oh the gun yeah oh i don't think it's scary <laughs> no, it's really scary you ever seen one in person man <laughs> pull up my legs here i was like okay yeah but yeah exactly so it, it it's really um it's an awesome platform it's an awesome platform uh because the uh you know, the, the ergonomics of it, the adaptability of it, it's very easy to shoot. Even a pregnant woman was able to take out some some bad guys uh, with it. So its popularity is as actually kind of a blessing at this point because now that is the strong... You, there is nothing to go from, you know, past that, right? Because if you say common use, how can you go past the most commonly used platform in America? You, you know what I mean? Like you can't say that's not allowed because that's that is the top. That is it. That's that's is the number one. So it's it's kind of basically we're just waiting for that to come through because once that gets to the Supreme Court, um, I think all assault weapons bans are going to be destroyed. And then Gorsuch he made a comment. I forgot in what form and when it was the past few years saying that like the ATF was basically you know hinting at that they were basically making up laws. So they're supposed to be a rulemaking body and they're not supposed to make laws, but they're, you know, he's basically saying the ATF is acting like Congress. Like he hinted at the fact that they're, you know, out of control. So I, I think that we have a very um, sweet but simple majority that would probably strike down most, most of what the ATF has ruled on of late and maybe even that the, you know, the F of ATF potentially. I mean, if, they, if they're willing to go that far, that'd be pretty cool. And what's what's the caliber that rules all other calibers? Did you, did you already mention it? Is it two two three? Is it five five six? What is it? Um, for handgun ammunition, I think nine millimeter does the job. It's um, you know, it, it's a got pretty good you know foot pound force. You can easily have a lot of of those rounds in in a lot of uh, your 
Standard capacity mags. So, you know, you easily get in 15 plus rounds in a mag. No problem. 15. Whoa. Not in California, sir. Watch out, man. Yeah, not, I don't even <laughs> think you're allowed to hint at that. That might actually be a crime. It might be in California. They arrest you immediately. Like the SWAT team comes in your, in your, uh, studio. You were making me. threats that you might have like, you know, one in the chamber <laughs> and, and 10 in the clip. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I mean, the two, two, three, or a little more powerful five, five, six, you know, they're the same kind of, you know, a diameter there, uh, just a little more powder in the five, five, six. Uh, they're generally good workaround calibers. It's actually not typically that even that strong enough for like bigger game. Like you don't typically use five, five, six, two, two, three for bigger game. You know, you're, you're, you'd be looking at something like, you know, 30 yacht six or something like that. Um, well, that was actually a trick question. The correct answer was 50 Action Express, and you failed horribly. <laughs> I'm sorry. With with the golden uh, cheetah stripes on it, too. But I thought you were going to say four bore or something. <laughs> that was that. <laughs> so um, we're, we're coming to uh, 90 minutes here. I want to give you another opportunity. First, please, please plug not just your voluntarist comic series, which is amazing. And everyone should check out the voluntarius comic. And if you like project blue beam, you probably do. If you're listening to this, um, check out the volunteers comic series, but you've also written a book and I believe you've got another one coming out soon. Right. And, um, tell us about that. I I've got a copy behind me. Um, our good friend, Chakal, uh, or Igor did the artwork, uh, for the cover of it. Uh, which is one of the artists that Ripa stole away from me. I'll never forget. Ripa has, has created a super villain. He doesn't know yet because I'm so small down on the, the <laughs> list, but one day I'm going to get like Lex Luthor on his ass, I swear, for taking <laughs> Igor away. I mean, it's like Igor is great. I love him. Um, he And yeah, he did work on that. He did a little thing, a few things for voluntarists as well. So I, I don't blame, you know, Eric for taking him. I'm like, ah, I, you know, I'm like, I'm sad, but you know, that's, I blame him. that's awesome. I mean, I'm coming you know. for you, Eric. <laughs> Eric, you lie. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's been awesome. It's, it's really been awesome to be able to, work with so many talented people on, you know, all these creative stuff. And as you mentioned, you know, the, the covers here that I had for my nonfiction books, these are the first two out that I have right now, which is a uh, libertarian voluntarism vision for libertarian future. Um, and then I, ooh, I, I got the right one. Okay. And then I have a third one coming out probably at the beginning of next year. Cause I got so many products otherwise going on because, Oh, that was loud. Um, so <laughs> as uh, I think I talked to you about last time, voluntarist went through a remaster. So, my, you know, my comic series, I had many struggles over the years, finally, you know, getting to my primary design that I wanted to have because the company I first was working with went defunct and then I had different artists and I was like, okay, this is frustrating. And as you know, uh, yourself working with comic artists, keeping someone on a project is always a challenge. I want to talk about, dude, it's been smooth sailing <laughs> for the last 10 years. I haven't hit a single bump. Single bump, not a single one. No, no, dude. This is when you know what you're doing, everything just falls into place. So <laughs> if you join my Patreon, I'll give you some some tips. You'll never run into <laughs> yeah. any problem ever again. Never, not a single one. But um, you know, so basically I was like, okay, it's time to remaster. So I I did it, I successfully did it, and we actually just finished it. We I the other day just finished the last page, lettered the last page myself, um, on what amounts to a nearly 200 page masterpiece trade oh, paperback wow. yeah so it, it's it's pretty beefy so i'm so proud of it i'm super excited for this and i'm i'm finally at a point where i'm where i have this i'm going to be fully bought into it and no longer ashamed you know because i had a little shame before when i was like oh my gosh i have a changed up artist midway 
you know, and the first artwork is not as, you know, up to par. I was, I was, I was ashamed. I'm no longer ashamed. The, the is this 10 is, episodes or 10 issues? Cause you said 200 pages. So it is technically six issues, but in order to fix things, my first comic was 24 pages. I'd expand it to 50 to fit all the dialogue. <laughs> to each yeah. And then the one, yeah, it was 24 pages. I expanded to 38. So now everything wow. is beautiful. The pacing's gorgeous. The artwork is overall solid and, and has good continuity. I did the letters, so it's not you know terrible and I got to fix things along the way. So we're doing a review this week and through the weekend on it and then we're submitting it for printing. And the covers are all redone. And for the trade paperback, it's a wraparound cover. So it's like a, it's an artwork that goes from front to back. It, it's awesome. gorgeous. Uh, so I'm, you know, I am just so honored that we were able to do this. And I, honestly, I feel um, you know, just really special that we got to this point because it was 10 years in the making, you know, five years of prototyping, essentially, and future verse prototyping, and then saying, okay, we're going to start the canon. So, and, and you were there, you know, for it. And I, you know, I even tried to plug Paranoid American. I was looking at the other day on my second campaign. Um, it's it's still there. You can see it there. You know, get a signed <laughs> comic from you. Unfortunately, nobody bought the perk. I tried to plug it <laughs> at the time, but um, but more people, of course, have gotten onto your your story since then. You know, you're just starting then too. So just like me. So yeah, uh, and I realized too that for like the first ten years, I just had my head down working on comics and not doing any promotion. Like I didn't talk <laughs> to anyone outside of my little bubble. So now I've got like ten years worth of product to start hustling out there. <laughs> And, Which and is great that that actually is so much better because and that's something I, I learned over the years is that the hardest part if you're just starting raw like oh here's my first campaign I'm just gonna go well now people are gonna have to wait so if you actually are just starting a promotion when there's a lore to dive into that mm. is the, the most ideal situation you can be in if you have something that people can sink their teeth into right off the bat that's the best time to actually do the big promotion because if all you have is oh here's my first issue for my you know kickstarter and you're like and we'll be up with the next one next year then if you're lucky yeah, yeah. issue you know, two comes out in four years yeah so exactly it's it's rough so the fact that you have so many things for someone as a fan to just dive into once they discover that makes way more sense to me. Like to, for you to put your energy into promoting what you've already developed, you know, you're in the right spot. And I love your stuff. Like I read it and I feel, you know, inspired by it. I take a look at, at the concepts you talk about and, you know, especially the conspiracy stuff. And I often think about like, you know, how I have that in my own world too. Cause as you know, we, I love when we talked to this before, like you have the conspiracy stuff with a little touch on Liberty. I had the touch on like Liberty <laughs> heroes and, North and little, you know, Easter eggs of conspiracy. So you got that nice little balance there, but uh, your, your work is just this great, you know, wealth of, of knowledge and it makes it exciting and fun. Cause oh, I'm, thank you, know, you, sir. This is about <laughs> you and your comics. You stop that. Well, I, I just say, I'm just trying to be, be real. Cause I've, looked at this stuff raw like you, you know, you read the books, you look at the, you know, the old manuscripts from the 1800s and, and the, you know, the 1900s and you go back even further and it's not exciting. You're just, you know, having to read through long books or just, you know, old news stories and stuff like that. It's, Are you saying the creature you know, from Jekyll Island couldn't come out and be like a blockbuster? <laughs> right. I mean, maybe if you did it right. Someone did do it right though for the animated version. If you've seen the American dream. It's, you're actually yeah you're absolutely right that was they did good. do that one right and that that guy actually went to my um undergrad and he went to i know he went to california to be a producer um and he i think he spent three hundred thousand dollars to make that uh animated short pretty and, pretty and now he's making videos for the uh podestic upcoming podesta campaign it could be i don't know i had I, he's he's been dark since that time he was very active back then 2008 <laughs> 2010 arena but not anymore so 
And what's the best place for people to get your voluntarious content? Like, are, do you are you going to do any diamond distribution, or is it going to be directly to um, readers through your website, or how are you going to go about it? So uh, with my remaster, things will still just be up on Indie Planet, although they've been really on the backlog, so I'm kind of frustrated with them right now. But you know, they'll have print on demand there, digital. It's going to be on Amazon Digital as well. So like on Indie Planet dot period, you know, US. That's where it's print on demand and sometimes, you know, digital on demand. There's also, it'll be on Amazon as well when you just search on there, the voluntarist. Um, and then I, you know, we'll print copies here and there if I'm going to table at conventions or if I'm doing a campaign, then the ones that I fulfill, of course, I'm, I'm printing and shipping. So, are there any uh, conventions that you have your eye on? The it's not a comic convention, but the next convention I, I probably will table at is the Libertarian Party of Florida convention, the LPF in January. But I am getting with this remaster and a, another project, a secret project. I'll, I'll show you later. Ooh, wow. uh, that is coming out for next year. I'm going to be wanting to table a lot in 2024. So my oh, this is I, the comic you're you're working on for the World Health Organization, isn't it? You told me about that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm basically teaching people how to prof, uh, properly get their 10th booster. So, <laughs> But uh, I'm going to be looking for opportunities in 2024 like crazy. I'm not sure how much it'll be on the comic book convention side. I would love to do Tampa Bay Comic Con or Metrocon uh, if possible. That that would be great. I got to feel it out. But there's, there's, you know, I might even create my own. You know what I mean? We were just talking about that before, right? About making it maybe a... An indie creator one, even if I, I like the idea, man. Yeah. I think that's where we need to be headed. And I honestly, yeah. I'm kind of with the same mindset of you. Like, I would yeah. probably rather go to cryptid conventions and liberty conventions uh, and stuff and hawk the comics because I think it'll be much easier to sell. Uh, and I guess that don't mean easy in like a convenience way, but it would it would be an easier sell for someone that's like liberty minded to then like buy a liberty um, type of a comic book or a liberty style book or like a free speech kind of comic versus going to the comic convention and being like, buy my book about conspiracy theories and not that superhero over there and not that, you know, big bosom chick over there. So well, and, and you can stand out more, I guess. Bosom chicks. If you had big bosom chicks on your conspiracies, I mean... Well, they- I actually do. It's funny you mentioned that. I've got a new Illuminati series coming out that is just like adults only because for a few of the distributors I was working with, they're like, man, if you made some like adults only stuff, it would it would fly. So right, right. here I'm at. I'm, I'm part of the Hollywood that, elite. So I'm going to have to let you you take the cake on that one. You... you, you uh, you grind that out. <laughs> oh no, we've got we've got Alistair Crowley's dick on like a big splash page and the and the back of one of them. So everyone can look forward to that. I mean it everyone needs to learn about these things and what's really going on. So I'm glad you're reaching people, you know, in all positions, in all, you know, rooms of the house, in all no crevices, you know, unexplored. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, thanks again for coming by. Um, and where can people find you on social media? Uh, right now, if you look, yeah, there, JackBLoyd.com. <laughs> that is my new uh, personal website. I do still have vol- the volcomic, you know, dot com one, but JackBLoyd.com is popping, and I, I'm getting ready to do bigger things with that. So it kind of links to a lot of the other things I do. So check that out there. All right, right on, man. Uh, thanks again for stopping by, and just a reminder that total paranoia is total consciousness. That's from, I think, the book of John. I don't remember which verse, but. (laughs) Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.